Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello, everybody. Happy Tuesday, or whenever it is that I end up posting this episode. I am relatively fresh back from New York. It was a uh, super quick but packed trip. It was really fun. I always enjoy going back to New York because it's where I grew up. Um, Hung out with a lot of cool people, recorded a podcast with my dad, which I will probably release next week, which I'm very excited about. Um, We had a pretty profound interesting conversation. Um, yeah, it was beautiful in New York. Apparently, uh, I was there, I guess like the two first spring days were when we were there. Um, so it was gorgeous and the trees were blooming and Central Park was packed with people getting out and enjoying the weather. It was pretty much ideal. So felt super grateful to be there at pretty much the ideal time. Um, took a lot, of, a lot of walks through the park. My dad lives on the Upper West Side. Um, it's funny, actually. I'm not sure if I've told this story very much on the podcast, but my family has this very prominent history on basically one block in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. Um, my mom grew up in a pretty well-known, famous building called the El Dorado Um you can pretty much see it from a great deal of Central Park up there by the reservoir. It has these like two very big uh, towers coming out of it. My mom grew up there. My grandparents lived there for many years after um, she grew up. So I spent a lot of time there uh, when I was young. And then my dad, um, he was dating someone when I was five for about 10 years. So someone that was really prominent in our life that lived just a block away. So the El Dorado's on Central Park West. This guy was um, living uh, on Columbus, just a block away, same block, 90th. My dad then happened to move into that exact apartment, so where he currently lives now. And at one point, my mom was engaged to someone who had his office on 90th between Central Park West and Columbus. So both sides of my family, in multiple ways, have had this history on this block. So when I go there and I stay with my dad, it's not just being with my dad and um, spending time with him and kind of that side of the family, but also this like rich family history on both sides. It feels 
just steeped in this kind of like generational and ancestral history for me. So it's really profound to go back there every time. And, um, I feel like every time I sort of absorb something from my past or learn something new about my family in this time was, um, certainly no exception. Um, so it was really fun. Glad to be back. Although not for very long, I leave on Monday, <clears throat> by the way, I have a little bit of a cough. So if I'm swallowing excessively or sound like I'm joking, it's because I am. Um, <laughs> but glad that I got slightly sick before I'm leaving because I am leaving on Monday and going away for basically the whole summer, at least, um, at least likely through July, going on a road trip, going, uh, driving all the way up to Vancouver and across the Canadian Rockies, um, down through Montana, Wyoming, probably going to spend a chunk of time in Colorado and going to be on the road. So I'm really psyched, but kind of crazy just in this last week before getting ready to go. Um, and on that note, for all of you that are listening, if you want to email me or send me a message on Instagram, my email is just my name, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S at Gmail. Let me know if you live anywhere from like LA all the way up the coast, Portland, you know, Santa Cruz, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, up to Vancouver, um, up into Banff and then down through again, Montana, Wyoming, um, Colorado. Yeah. And then swinging back down to LA. If any of you guys live in any of those places and want to hang out or have any suggestions for places to stay and park and sleep or just chill, I would love to meet some of you. Um, so let me know. Don't be strangers. It would be really cool to see some of you guys face to face. And also, I'm going to be doing podcasts the whole time. So if there are people that you think I should interview along that route, also shoot me a note. If you think I should interview you, send me a message. It'd be super awesome. Um, what else to share? Um, one kind of interesting observation that I had, I actually had this epiphany while I was in New York. I was leaving a message, a voice message for a friend. I've been having this experience lately where I've been saying that I feel like my life is happening kind of like three steps ahead of me, and I'm not really quite sure if I'll ever catch up to it. Um, and I've also kind of explained it in the sense of like, I feel like my life's happening in this realm that's sort of just outside of my grasp. Um, and it's been slightly disorienting. It doesn't at all feel like I'm not present. I definitely feel present, but so much is happening and expanding and unfolding that it just sort of feels beyond my reach. And I couldn't quite figure out what that was about. Um, it didn't feel bad. Again, like everything that's happening is amazing. It just felt like I was not a part of it as much as I feel like I was a part of my life in the past. Although again, it wasn't that I wasn't present or in the moment at all. Quite the opposite. I felt way more tuned in. Anyway, I was explaining this to a friend and <clears throat> I realized that I wonder if why that's happening is because kind of for the first time in my life, I've been making a really conscious effort to relinquish control. So I was always someone that would get really, really crazy when I felt like I wasn't in control of something, wasn't holding on to something, wasn't totally calling the shots for every single thing that was happening. And 
anytime something happened that was outside of my expectation, I would freak out and have a ton of anxiety. Um, and it took me a really long time to actually even identify that that's what was happening. And then once I identified it, I made a conscious and intentional choice to step back and not do that. And what's fascinating is that since I stopped doing that, since I stopped having my hands so deep in everything in my life, of course, so much more is happening and falling into place in a beautifully perfect and synchronistic way, which of course happens, right? Like the more we think we're in control, we're actually preventing what's supposed to happen. So I made this conscious choice to kind of just step back and just kind of like watch everything. I feel like I'm like astral projecting on my own life. Like I'm just kind of witnessing everything going on. But I recognize that these two things are tied together. My intentional choice to let go and this feeling of my life almost happening outside of me. And it's such a bizarre new feeling that it made me realize how I've never done this before. I've never lived in this way where I wasn't going crazy trying to hold on to something, which of course I probably didn't have any control over in the first place. I was just driving myself crazy. Um, <clears throat> but I thought that was fascinating and I guess wanted to share that for anyone that struggles with that or feels like they kind of go nuts when they are out of control or don't feel like they are managing and planning and scheduling their day to a T or um, uh, compiling all these expectations for how things should go, you know. It's been so beautiful to watch how much has happened since I stopped doing that and also kind of feel like I'm living in this. I honestly feel like I, I feel like I'm on drugs almost constantly, but I'm not. <laughs> you know, I just feel like I'm sort of floating through space in this really beautiful, relaxed, calm, chill way. Um, and I think that actually goes in a little bit to the interview that I'm posting today. Today's conversation is with Sean Korn. She's a like world-renowned um, yoga teacher. She just came out with a book. I met her at a party uh, a few weeks ago. I don't know. I've lost track of time. But she kind of started talking about what she is and who she's about. And immediately I was like, do you want to go on a podcast? Because <laughs> I would really love to talk to you. Um, and when you hear what uh, she has to say and what her book's about. I think you guys will understand why so much of what she talks about aligns with what this podcast is about. Um, especially the whole concept that I talk about all the time in terms of fixing yourself to fix the world. Um, but we talk a lot about grief and releasing trauma and sort of like moving into a very supremely, um, <clears throat> majestic female space of, uh, release and, um, letting go. And I think that's really what I'm beginning to become more in touch with, sort of moving out of this masculine desire to hold on and control and um, maneuver and strategize and just sort of stepping back and really like living in that beautiful feminine space has been such a relief. So just wanted to share that. Um, what else? Uh, Patreon. Patreon. So since you guys know this podcast is ad-free, I would love to keep it that way. Um, I would love to make this more of my career. As you know, it's free to listen to uh, and takes quite a bit of work and time to put it out, which is fine. I love doing it and I appreciate that all of you are even listening like that in and of itself is huge to me. But if you have a few bucks a month to help support the show, if you listen to the show every week, if you share it with your friends, 
If you get something out of it, I would really appreciate it if you could become a patron. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash Anya Cates, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. Um, you can donate in tiers, so like anywhere from five to a million. Um, just kidding, five to like, I don't know what tier I have, $75 or something like that. Um, and depending on what tier you donate within, you get access to perks. So I do a bonus... Um, Sorry, I'm choking. This cough thing, whatever this is. <clears throat> Who gets coughs? Like, I haven't gotten a cough in so long. Like, colds? Sure. Coughs? I don't really know. Hope it goes away before I leave. Anyway, um, I do bonus episodes every month on Patreon. I do a weekly column of inspiration called Minerva's Muse, where I share, like, an article I really like, um, music I've been listening to, uh, something to watch, <clears throat> etc., share that weekly. Um, there's shirts on there. If you donate within a certain tier, um, oh, and I do monthly worksheets. So I just released one all about psychological projection. I've done a bunch on astrology, planetary retrogrades, like astrology myths, etc. So head to Patreon would really appreciate your support. And, um, yeah, it's cool to like grow a community in that way and touch base with you and, um, see and connect with, the listeners in a way that is a little bit more intimate. Um, but again, even if you're not a patron, I still really appreciate your support. You can also leave some stars or a review on iTunes. Takes a couple minutes. Subscribe. That helps the podcast show up more in search results. Share it with a friend, all that good stuff. Super appreciate it. Anything helps. Um, just love that you guys are there on the other side of this mic somewhere. I was actually looking at my podcast hosting site recently and seeing where in the world everyone's listening from. There's a lot of people all around, which is like amazing. I think this is episode 20 and we already, I have people <clears throat> listening in what looks like, I don't know, like 75% of the countries out there, which is just like super rad. Like, okay, like cool. There are people listening to this in like Nepal and Afghanistan. Like what the hell? It's so awesome. I'm just super excited to see where this goes. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, again, hit me up if you live anywhere on the West Coast. Would love to hang out um, and meet you guys face to face while I'm on the road. And yeah, I think that's it. I will get into this interview and catch you guys on the other side. Okay, so I'm here with Sean, who very graciously agreed to do two podcasts in a row, <laughs> <laughs> which probably for you should be good. Because it seems like you like to talk, so that's... <laughs> I can talk, yeah. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a good thing. Me too. Um, so we met at a party a few weeks ago, and I remember you saying something that you wrote a book that was pretty radical because it went outside of your community. You're mm -hmm. a yoga teacher. I would love to just kind of start there. Why sure. was it radical? Um, and um, how did that come about? Well, I had to backtrack a little bit. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, backtrack a little bit in that um, I am a yoga teacher. But I'm also a social justice activist, and I had been very involved in activism since I was young in different ways. When I was young, though, my activism was really unmindful and actually probably harmful because I didn't really understand um, where my rage was coming from. So I would show up at rallies. I loved rallies. You know, I, I was an activist for, uh, for gay rights, for um, women's health issues. Uh, animal rights, environmental justice, but rallies were my thing. I was a frontline activist. I liked to scream and yell and I liked opposition and I wasn't afraid of conflict in that way. And after a rally was done, I felt amazing. Um, I'd be high as a kite. 
until the next day or the day after that, I would start to, the, the anxiety would start to build, although I wouldn't have known it as anxiety. I, I would just start getting you know, restless and want to get to the next rally. What I know after years of doing yoga and being on a path was that when I would scream and yell, I was actually discharging the anger that was in my body without actually processing the anger. So I was temporarily feeling better, but in order for me to discharge that energy, I needed opposition. I needed something to be against. This is not effective leadership because I would meet rage with rage. I would meet fear with fear. And the only thing that gets created then is more rage, more fear. And so this is why activists are often not sustained, why they burn out, because they're not doing the inner work to understand what is it that is stimulating this sense of injustice within my own body. So I got, I wouldn't say I got out of activism. There was a few events that happened that I realized that I was, I started to get a sense that I wasn't as skilled as I thought. I was passionate, but I wasn't mindful. And of course, got into yoga and practice, practice, practiced. And at one point decided to get back into service. And uh, there were so many things that happened during that time that that mirror just kept getting put back up onto me to show me how I was actually participating in creating the very separation in which I was suggesting I wanted to see changed because that separation was still within myself. And so, so I had been doing service work and then yoga, but they lived independent of each other. My services in one side, my yoga was in the other. When I got back into service, I worked at a, uh, a shelter that housed and educated young girls and boys, um, children who were sex trafficked, often referred to as adolescent prostitutes, but I, have a, I don't use that particular term describing children who have been sexually abused in this way because it suggests that they're somehow complicit uh, in it. And uh, these children were exploited, abused, trafficked. This shelter is incredible. But the first time I went there, it was a horrible experience. The kids were dissociative, they were angry, they were aggressive, and um, they scared me because what I realized in time was that I was looking at aspects of my own shadow self that I was separate from. These were my shadow, the parts of me that I cannot stand and that I try to deny and repress. So here I am faced with it, and my first impulse is to do to them exactly what I do to myself, which is run, get away, get angry. Um, and I thought, oh, there's a connection here. <laughs> there's something that I have to look at within the individual that is showing me where, I'm, where, I'm, uh, of, where I lack within my own service and activism. So did a lot of deep work around that, and created an organization called Off the Mat Into the World, which is a nonprofit that um, helps to bridge the gap between yoga, transformational work, justice, and conscious action. And I had been going around the country teaching spiritual activism workshops, and people were getting into it. You know, they were starting to see like there's some space for leadership within the yoga community, but there was no follow through. I can get people inspired, but I had no organized arm that can help to aggregate or harness the energy and actually do something with it mindfully. 
So I created this organization. I co-founded it, Off the Man Into the World, to teach people how to step into conscious leadership, what that looked like, how to develop the inside-out skills um, to be able to approach social change through more radical accountability, um, as well as recognizing the ways in which we dismantle systems, uh, systems that create oppression, or by dismantling the systems that create oppression within ourselves. And that it's deep work. It's hard work. It is radical work. Now, writing the book, Revolution of the Soul, the reason it was radical is because usually in spirituality books, it stops with the me. It doesn't turn back to the world. And it might say, you know, we have to serve and there's karma yoga, but it doesn't look at the shadow of service, especially if you are a, if you're part of the dominant culture in which I am and in which many in the mainstream yoga community and the wellness communities are, um, white, privileged, educated. Um, it was, it felt of a real disservice to inspire people into social change without inviting them to unpack the harm that we in the dominant culture cause when we go out to, and I put this in quotes, air quotes, cause you can't see me, um, help when helping is often replicating these systems of dominance and that we have to really look at how do we show up in marginalized communities? How do, do we show up in the world? How do we often impose our Western ideals into ideas and cultures that we don't even understand? Um, and because of their unfamiliarity, we often think that they're somehow wrong um, and that we know better. Yoga invites self-reflection, self-inquiry. Often it stays on, you know, my heartbreak, my loss, my divorce, you know, um, whatever it might be, my trauma without going deeper and looking at the ways in which historical and ancestral and cultural trauma, cultural limited beliefs, prejudices and biases live within us, inform who we are and how we see the world and how the world sees us. So the reason that, that uh, Revolution of the Soul is more progressive is because it deals with these themes. I use myself as a model for uh, this incongruent behavior that actually creates suffering to show examples of my own power and privilege, to show examples of my own um, bias and discrimination, to show examples even of my own racism. With, so we can normalize the conversation because the, 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 the inquiry is not that I'm racist, not that I'm sexist or homophobic or transphobic. That should be a given. It's my avoidance of taking accountability without understanding that, without unpacking that, then I will cause suffering. I will cause harm because of my unconscious actions. And so if I'm going to suggest that I want social change, it's from the inside out. It starts with me. And so the book models what that looks like and then provides tools to invite people to look at their own biases, to understand the mind-body connection, and to be able to, in the moment of conflict and crisis, to resource breathe, ground, so that their response to that conflict and crisis is in present time, is in a more integrated space, and they're not reverting to old dominant behavior that is so normalized within our culture um, and so actualized in our body that it feels right, mm -hmm. even though it's creating such harm. Right. Yeah, I love, I talk a lot about spiritual bypass on my podcast, and you talked a bit about this with Chris, the that yoga in and of itself can be this mask mm -hmm. <laughs> and this costume that we wear to say, okay, I'm doing the work. And this idea that, you know, which is repeated so frequently, like, oh, we can just love the injustice away as long as I'm present in love. Mm -hmm. um, 
And like, how do you see that interplay with anger, right? Because all of the anger and just living in that place doesn't mm-hmm. work either. I see, I don't know, I feel like people are hesitant to find the gray area within mm-hmm. that space. Sure. Because um, it doesn't look like spirituality. When we think of spirituality, mm-hmm. we think of um, the image we might have is living in the light. And so it's things that are positive. It's butterflies and strawberries and rainbows and it's people running around dressed in white and there is no anger or rage or shame or guilt. But yoga teaches us that everything is connected. The, the definition is to come together and make whole. Therefore, to understand the light, you've got to understand the shadow. You have to be in relationship to the shadow, not deny it, not kill it, destroy it. It's a part of our humanity. It's our judgment that teaches compassion. It's our fear that teaches us faith. Without that fear, we have nothing to work with within our, within our five sense reality to be able to open up to something that's within the sixth, the sixth sense or in more transcendent realms. And so that avoidance is what I see so often in the communities because we want it, we are more attached to our self image, um, uh, rather than being a whole person that has faults and graces. My interest is being in a whole, as is in being a whole person and encouraging others to be a whole person and embrace all aspects of the human experience. Because if I can't, then I can't have the empathy that is necessary to be able to be in true service. Like how I treated those young girls, or those young children when I first worked with them. Because I wasn't doing the work, deeper work on myself, they scared me. So my impulse was to reject their shadow because I had rejected my own. Once I embraced my shadow, then when I met theirs, I recognized that their shadow was a response to trauma and that my heart went out to the children that they are, to the trauma that that they're living in, and their response didn't trigger me in the same way. I saw it as like, of course they're angry, of course they're defensive, of course they're dissociative, what other option would they have based on their experience and the lack of tools, the resources uh, like yoga or therapy, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. to help them integrate their trauma into their bodies and into their lives? Um, so I think that denying anger is denying a huge aspect of our experience and that in the practice of yoga, though, the, the sacred texts going way back, thousands of years, written by men, um, it's very patriarchal. Yeah. There's a lot within the system of yoga that is remarkable, but there's also teachings that I think are limited. For example, we are taught big feelings come up, you detach, you sit, you witness the feelings, but you don't actually indulge them or engage with them or identify with them. Well, what I understand is that detachment without awareness is dissociation. So the anger is still there. It's just deeply suppressed, but that anger suppressed, that's disease, that's depression. And so my interest is let's go to the anger because you can't get to the bless you until you go to the fuck you. Otherwise that fuck you will find a way, a a wonderful, leaky, manipulative way to rear its animal head because it's energy that needs to be expressed. Right. Do you feel like, and, um, Again, I would go listen to Tangentially Speaking. I don't want to totally repeat this conversation, but you came upon yoga and spirituality in a, in a pretty unconventional way. I mm-hmm. think within unconventional spaces with unconventional people. Yeah. Do you feel like in the development of your spirituality that that sort of allowed you to conceptualize the breadth of what spirituality as a whole totally. was about? Yeah. yeah, I'll tell you a story. This is a story from the book. It's actually the very first chapter in the book. Mm. 
about how I came to know God because I, I wasn't raised with religion. I was raised an agnostic. My parents, my father would have been half Catholic, half Jewish. My mother was Jewish, came from a very um, rigorous Jewish family. My father wasn't Jewish enough for my mother and they didn't want my parents to be together um, on either side. And my parents got pregnant when my, when they were still young, uh, really deliberately. So they had to be together. And my grandmother offered my father a Cadillac if he could convince my mother to abort the baby. And my parents were like, really, this is coming from religious people. Mm. And so their attitude was just like, then fuck this. We're not going to raise our children with any kind of dogma or religion. We're going to raise them in an environment where there's a lot of love. We'll celebrate every holiday that gives a gift, which is what we did. Mm. Sometimes we put a Jewish star on the top of the Christmas tree. But there really wasn't any talk of God. And my dad said, you know, if there was a God, it would probably be all loving. So, you know, we went towards agnostic. But the the environment outside of my home was very Catholic and there was a lot of God fearing in my friends and at school and I picked that stuff up. So I had a lot of paranoia about God. God seemed to show up when you messed up and I was kind of a, an exploratory naughty kid. So I was messing up all the time. So I was afraid of this unseen energy. So at around 16, I decided I was atheist, that I did not believe in God. And I was, I held fast to that. So when I moved to New York City, one of the jobs that I got was at a nightclub called Limelight. Limelight is this very famous uh, um, nightclub that is in an old, old church. I worked in the disco part of this church and behind the bar. One night, um, something happens and I need to find my manager. And so I'm running around the club and I see a back set of stairs that I had never really seen before mm. that went up to what had been the rectory. So I'm running up the stairs and I get to the top of the stairs and I see these red velvet ropes, you know, like you do. And I hear music and I'm thinking, oh, there's a, a club within the club that I didn't know about. So I go to unhook the rope to go in and then this big burly bouncer, you know, like puts his arms out and says, you can't come in. And I said, I'm Sean. I work downstairs. I'm looking for my manager. And he said, uh, you can't come in. So all of a sudden I stop, I look around and I realize that there's all men dancing and that they're not just dancing. Like they're na some are naked. Like there's some shit going on. And I, I turned to the bouncer and I said, where am I? And he said, you're in heaven. Now get out of here. So I found my manager and I was like, what was that? And he said, it's a, a all male gay sex club called heaven. That's in the rectory of this club. No women, cisgendered women are allowed in there. And I was fascinated. <laughs> this is like the best metaphor I've ever heard. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm out of my mind. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, there was penis everywhere. What goes down? And that was my nature anyway. Always been very curious. I, I, my friends call me a cosmic voyeur, meaning where I know I, there's a line that I draw in terms of my own exploration but I always lean right into it. And I, if someone else is doing it, I want to know, I want to see, but I don't, I won't often like cross that line, but I have zero judgment about it. And that's how I felt about, you know, an all male, an all male gay sex club. Like what goes on? So the next day I get to work and normally there would be a, uh, a D next to my name, uh, on my schedule for disco. Hmm. I look at my schedule and it has an H and I had a new job. They put me up to work behind the bar at heaven, but there was all these rules. 
I couldn't use the bathroom up there. I had to go downstairs into the club. I couldn't leave the bar. Like I had to stay basically like behind this barrier. But I got to, you know, I got to see it all for the most part because there were these two red doors. And behind those red doors were the back rooms. They're painted black with black lights, glory holes and, um, you know, all sorts of stuff going back there. I wasn't allowed back there during the, um, the shift. Afterwards, I can go back. But not while people were there. But on the dance floor alone, you know, there was so much stuff going on, and I loved it. It was the only, like I said, cisgendered white woman, or the only cisgendered woman allowed in there, um, meaning that I, yeah, I'm born of the sex that I am. And uh, uh, there were a lot of uh, um, all different kinds of folk in that environment. But I was you know, kind of regulated to the side. Well... There was a man who came into the club. Uh, his name was Billy. Billy was an African-American man, probably around 58 years old. And um, Billy had been raised, born and raised in Ohio. He had been married to the only woman he had ever had sex with. They had children. He had grandchildren, but grandchildren he had never seen. And the reason why he, Billy had never seen his grandchildren was because at one point in his life, he came to terms with his sexuality. And when he did, he was ostracized by his family, by his church, uh, by his community, and because they couldn't reconcile Billy's sexuality with who they needed him to be as a father and, uh, um, I put again in air quotes, you know, a proper Christian. And so he left home and moved to New York City to live his life. And so Billy came into the club often and loved me. Uh, he was also sober. Um, he uh, had been uh, a hardcore drug user and was sober. And he, the only issue that Billy had with me was my drug use at that time. So, you know, he'd give me a lot of shit about it. Um, but we were close. Well, a three-week period goes you by. You were quite young at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm 18, 18, you know, 18 19 years yeah. old. Um, and, and doing a lot of drugs. Yeah. And drinking. So, you know, he'd give me a hard time. I'm like, Billy, I just saw you strapped to the wall. You know, like, mm. where are you, why are you judging me? So he, about three weeks goes by and I don't see Billy. And finally, you know, he comes through the club and I'm so excited to see him. And as he's walking across the dance floor towards me, I noticed right away that he seemed frailer. Like I, right away I thought, oh, maybe he's been sick. Um, but I lean over the bar and I go to throw my arms around Billy and pull him into a hug. But before I touch him, I notice that he's got these open sores on his neck and his shoulder and one on his face. So before I touch him, I pull back and I said, oh my God, Billy, what's that? And he looks at his shoulder and he said, they're symptomatic of my disease. And I remember my heart beating because I knew what was going to come next. And I said, what disease? And he says, I have AIDS. Now, this is in the late 80s. So at, that, at this time, there's probably, you know, 40 reported cases of HIV. Now there's 40 million. And even though I was working in a gay sex club and I was as sophisticated as a young kid could be in that environment, I was still a young kid. And when I heard the word AIDS, I recoiled. I pulled back. And I, I'll never forget the look of hurt on his face. Um, and I felt so ashamed. It wasn't the first time he had seen that look. and it certainly wasn't going to be the last. And so I apologized and he said, Sean, do you want to understand more about my disease? And I said, of course. So explain to me how he thinks he could have gone. At that time, he wouldn't have known, you know, could have been 
when he was doing drugs and sharing needles. It could have been any number of men, any number of moments. And um, that he came to the club to be in his community, but that he didn't use the back rooms and that everyone knew that he had AIDS and they left him alone, um, which made sense. I, uh, then it suddenly dawned on me why he seemed so melancholy and lonely at times. It was more than just being away from his family. There was this that he was dealing with. And so I asked him a bunch of questions. Could I get it if he kissed me, if he hugged me, if he cried on my shoulder? And, you know, he answered the questions as best they could. And then I said to him, um, I, you know, what's going to happen? And he says, I'm going to die. You know, just like that. Not like, not like one day, you know, it was like, I'm going to die. And I asked him if he was scared and he shook his head. He said, no. I asked him why. And he said, because of his faith in God. And for the second time that night, I recoiled. And this time, though, he laughed. And he says, Sean, don't you believe in God? And I said, no, I don't. And I explained to him why. And I explained to him about this patriarchal God and how it punished when you, when you messed up and how I always messed up. And, you know, I told him that, you know, I had these superstitions around God and that I would have to do things in certain orders to make sure that, you know, people that I loved didn't get hurt because even though I didn't believe in God, there was still a part of me that thought, well, if there is a God, he's bad and mean. And so Billy, I remember just nodding his head. He had this smile on his face, just like, you know, it was, it was quite, it was quite special. Cause then he turned to me, he says, Sean, he said, do you want to see God now? And I said, uh, I looked around the club, you know, men dancing naked and tied up to the walls, going into the back rooms. And I said, here? And he said, yes. And I said, yeah, you show me God here. So Billy points to Danny the Wonder Pony. Danny the Wonder Pony was a white guy who showed up to the club every night, but naked except for a pair of chaps and a saddle. And for one dollar, you can climb up onto Danny's back and you can hit him with a switch and he would trot around the dance floor and whinny. And Billy points to Danny and says, God's right there. And then he points towards, at that time, this was a, cha- a transgendered um, person. At that time, though, we wouldn't have, uh, we would have referred to, to those words, yeah. We would have used the him pronoun and we would have referred yeah. to uh, her uh, as a cross dresser. Mm-hmm. Um, her name was Violet. Violet was about six foot five would wear a light blue house dress with sensible shoes, a gray wig with a hat with a veil, carried a little navy blue pocketbook, and looked very similar to my, you know, four-foot-nine immigrant Polish grandma. And um, uh, Violet was a beautiful, beautiful soul. And um, Billy points towards Violet. They catch eyes. Violet blows Billy a kiss, and Billy grabs it and pulls it to his heart, looks at me and says, God's right there. And then Billy um, refers to two gentlemen, like they were kind of playfully arguing in in one of the bars, I mean um, booths. They were wearing like business suits and there was a pitcher of bud between them. They looked like either one of my very straight and conservative brothers. And Billy points to them and said, God's right there. And then Billy takes his hand. Billy was a big guy, you know, dark skinned. He puts his big hand across my tiny chest, takes my tiny little white hand, you know, puts it on his broad chest and he holds it and we just stare at each other hands on each other's heart and Billy says Sean God's right here Mm. he said I'm going to tell you something right now and I hope you remember this the whole of your life he says 
Ignore the story and see the soul. And remember to love. You'll never regret it. Ignore the story and see the soul. And remember to love. You'll never regret it. And then he proceeds to say, Danny, Violet, these men, you and me, it's just a story. It's not who we are. He said, you, uh, he said, me and AIDS, Danny, um, and running around like a pony. These are aspects of our experience. They are here to inform who we are, but it's not who we are. He said, we are love and we are truth. And that truth and love, that is God. And that God is within and that God is within you. He said, all of us are just working out, working it out. He said, we're just living life and opening ourselves up to the love that is inside of us. He said, so don't judge. Don't see the story. Don't attach yourself to the personality. See the soul that is emerging within each being. Now, over the years, I have sat at the feet of saints and sages. I have been all over in the world in the quest of understanding God and our relationship to this divine essence and never in all those years of, of seeking, if you will, did I understand God more than in an all-male gay sex club <laughs> in an old church called Heaven Amazing. by an angel named Billy. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I, my podcast listeners have heard this a bunch, but um, my dad is gay, and I divorced, married to my mom in a heterosexual relationship. Actually, he... It's fascinating because he actually thinks that because he did that and it was the mid eighties, he was like, it would just be easier if I was straight, you mm-hmm. know, given mm-hmm. what everything was going on. And so he actually credits that sort of trajectory of him avoiding the worst of, right? of the AIDS crisis. And anyway, he divorced my mom when I was five. I didn't find out he was gay till I was 10. And there was these, this five years where he was in a relationship with a man, lived with a man. I saw them being intimate, holding hands, kissing it didn't even occur to me that anything about that was strange. And then at 10, when I found out he was gay, actually it was in a conversation my, I had with my mom and they had agreed they wouldn't tell me until I was like ready to hear or when I asked. Mm-hmm. So I asked and she said, yes, dad's gay. And immediately I thought that the next time I'd see him, he'd be a different person because mm-hmm. now I had this label associated. Yep. Right. So it was like, I, it was, it occurred to me when you were telling that story, like the importance of, um, these experiences at a young age when you realize that nothing is as it seems, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> that these societal constructions, labels, boxes are mm-hmm. very much of our own. Um, it's an amazing story. Thank yeah. you for telling that. Yeah. Well, I could not have received the message of God within right. in any other form. Right. Like I wasn't hearing it in a church or in the temple or in the mosques. I wasn't he- I wouldn't hear it yeah. because it, it felt oppressive it felt dogmatic. Yeah. It felt isolated to who got to be in relationship with God and who didn't. And here I am in an environment to some people, the darkest of the dark. And yet what Billy was trying to say to me is, no, God is everywhere in all moments and all experiences. There's not a single moment. There's not a single being, not a single experience that doesn't have the essence of grace within it. Yeah. And it helped me to embrace God as truth and love that's within didn't change my atheism, but I really believe you can be an atheist and not believe in like a literal interpretation of God. If you live your life in truth and in love, if that is your commitment, there's nothing more holy. There's nothing more blessed than that. That's God emanating through you in your actions. And so it really opened my mind to embrace love as an essence, um, as a quality of beingness. And 
I would not have learned it in any other way. And it's why I'm as open as I am. It's why I, I see the connections between the light and the shadow without thinking that it should be individuated. It's because of this experience with Billy. Right. Have you read Inner Gold by Robert Johnson? No. It's great. It, I mean, it's all about psychological projection, right? Like, and even going back to where we started this conversation about anger and getting angry and mm-hmm. that, you know, we are both the, the concept of the book, it's spiritual, but not and inner gold is basically our inner God. Mm-hmm. And that we, when we, um, sort of fantasize about a person or a thing that we are trying to give them this God that we can't or aren't ready to fully embody within mm-hmm. ourselves. And we mm-hmm. do the same, obviously, with negative psychological projection. It's the same. Yep. Um, but that was sort of a a big moment for me. Like, oh, yeah, this 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 idea, this defense mechanism that we um, enact is not just projecting the shadow. It's also projecting the healthy God, mm-hmm. godly aspect mm-hmm. of, of ourselves. Right. Um, but it's still, anth- I can never pronounce this word, anthro homorphic. Yes. And when we assign, whether it's the God, God or the devil, these qualities of humanity, it's limited by our five sense reality. And that's the problem. Mm -hmm. So we project onto it all that we see within ourselves when there is so much more going on in this universe than we can ever possibly comprehend. Right. And when I open myself up to that, then I can see God as being within me, within you, but also beyond us and be as we mature we'll get glimpses into the that broader dynamic energy but not until we're ready and not until we kind of pass through certain um stages of evolution within our own consciousness right and that's the beauty of this is that where you're at right on but trust that it continues to evolve right i'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about um yoga and trauma in the body mm-hmm. and grief and femininity, mm-hmm. like the intersection of all of those, um, I'm fascinated by and have talked about in various contexts, um, which is such a broad topic. So where to begin, yeah. but you had said something around how we're taught in this patriarchal society to suppress. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there's a lot of, uh, feminism that aims to make women more like men, mm-hmm. um, which I find really problematic and mm-hmm. that there is a, uh, we have forgotten what healthy femininity as an mm-hmm. archetype looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were describing yoga, but I obviously anything that's targeting that grief and allowing us to open up as a way to access that. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about okay. your experience? Yeah. So let's, um, let me, let me, uh, backtrack because I think that there's going to be a lot of connectors in this conversation. Yeah. So I had mentioned earlier that yoga is, uh, it means to come together and make whole. There's no separation. That includes the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. Our physiology is impacted by our psychology, by our thoughts. What connects us is energy. Energy is defined as vibration with information. So there's tangible energy, gross energy that we can see. Then there's subtle energy which includes emotions like love and happiness, joy, but also fear, rage, shame, guilt, grief. The shadow emotions. Shadow emotions are the emotions we all have, but we don't want anyone to know about because we think they're bad or wrong. Um, It has its own resonance. So hold that piece. Now there's trauma. Trauma is anything that overwhelms our capacity to cope and leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, or out of control. There's shock trauma and there's developmental trauma. In a lot of ways, developmental trauma is harder to, um, it's harder to treat. 
um, shock trauma, murder, rape, war, you know, unimaginable violence, but developmental trauma, divorce, death of a loved one, finding out your father is gay and not having the words to express the feelings around it, right. not mature enough at that moment. Suddenly you're given this piece of information. Yeah, the physical manifestation of when I found out, I was hysterically laughing and sobbing simultaneously. I mean, it uh -huh. couldn't have been a more mm -hmm. potent like right. representation of all that was going on. Actually, that's yeah. really, in a lot of ways, that's really good because you were yeah. discharging. Yeah. Because what happens when we experience any kind of trauma? Trauma is, again, anything that overwhelms our, our, our capacity to cope, leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, or out of control. When we experience trauma, they're associated with emotions, rage, shame, guilt, grief, jealousy, et cetera, those shadow emotions. Chemicals released from the brain, they flood into our bodies. They impact our central nervous system. We're put into fight, flight, freeze, or collapse. Our body contracts. The moment of contraction, that story, that trauma is imprinted in our cellular tissue. It becomes who we are. That story, is, that narrative is now part of our physiology. If we can discharge the energy like you did in that moment by laughing or crying, it would have been helpful if they could have given you space to express what it was that you were laughing or crying about. What is it? Like, what, what do you, um, if I had been your mom at that time, it's like, beat the shit out of a pillow. I'm angry because, and express right. it. I'm scared because, until you can get to what's underneath it, which is I'm sad because. The grief is what underlies all of that. But our society doesn't teach us how to be with our big feelings. It teaches us to take those big feelings and shove them down. But those suppressed emotions, remember they have a vibration, they have a resonance, becomes the tension that lives in our body. Tension, stress, and anxiety, the number one causes of illness and depression. So now connecting it to, to um, femininity, to uh, women by our nature, one of the gifts that we've been given is intuition. There is a knowing that we have organically. It is cellular. It is passed down from our ancestors. It is the magic of our being. But if we have low self-esteem, we cannot trust our intuition. We will second guess it because intuition doesn't always take you into the, into the positive spaces. It'll take you into the shadow. It, you'll just know that that's where you have to be. You'll just trust that. The reason that we have low self-esteem is because of societal trauma, is because of ancestral, cultural, historical trauma. It's because we get attached to our narratives. Um, we get attached to our ego. We are so in lockdown, afraid to get hurt. Our body is in that tension. We don't have any evidence that what's on the other side of that tension is actually liberation, and that liberation connects us to our intuition. And so what you see are women addicted to the tension, suppressed, and angry. Anger is the patriarchy. It's the emotion associated with patriarchy. The patriarchy understands anger. It doesn't understand vulnerability. It doesn't understand tears. And so what we see now, even in modern-day feminism, is that we are being taught to replicate the anger. But we meet, if anger meets anger, fear meets fear, no change can happen. In feminine leadership, we've got to be able to stand in the presence of anger without reacting to it, feeling it, feeling our own, processing it later, screaming, crying, raging later, but in that moment, understanding that you're actually meeting trauma. How do we manage that in those moments? So the yoga practice is complex in that way. 
in that it invites us to peel back the narratives. Remember Billy said, ignore the story and see the soul. Remember to love, you'll never regret it. Now he's not saying the story doesn't have value. They are aspects, but they do not define us. So if we're defined by our own narrative, then we can't see our own soul. So we've got to peel back that narrative and see what was that narrative meant to teach us? How has that particular story been of value for the evolution of our consciousness? How did that, that event about your father, would you be here behind this microphone with the sensitivity, with the maturity, with the awareness that you have, had you not had that moment in time? Maybe, but maybe not. That moment informed the maturation of your consciousness. It was your particular teaching. Doesn't mean it was easy, but our work is to not just reframe the narrative, but to assign meaning and purposefulness, even to the incomprehensible, to shift our perception, if you will. Can't change what is. Can't change that moment in time, but you can certainly change the way you see it and actually have gratitude because you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here without the events in my life that came prior. Yeah. Yeah. Such a complex issue. Um, it's interesting too because yoga, I think, can also be seen as this controlling of the body, mm-hmm. right? Yes. To hold on to this control and yet it triggers release. It actually kind of makes me think about the interplay between masculinity and femininity, too, mm-hmm. right? Hatha, hatha yoga, hatha, mm-hmm. hatha, sun, moon, moon being the feminine sun being the masculine. So you're spot on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, I was also thinking I had this moment in therapy. I'd been in therapy my whole life, but it wasn't, wasn't doing anything. I didn't know why I was there. I kind of just felt like I had to, and finally got to the place where I was like, okay, I'm ready to do the work and unpacked a lot of stuff about my childhood and my past and my parents. And I remember my therapist asking me, she said, so, you know, now that you have this information, you know, how do you think that what do you, how do you feel that has shifted your own identity? And I said, well, you know, very, very quickly. I said, well, if it weren't for those experiences, you know, I wouldn't be who I am today. So I'm very grateful. And she said, that's fine. But how might that reaction actually be preventing you from experiencing the pain mm-hmm. associated mm-hmm. with that yeah. experience? Yeah. It's what I said with Chris. Right. I think I said it with Chris. You cannot get to the bless you until you go through the fuck you. Don't devalue the fuck you. The fuck you is necessary because it's an energy. Mm-hmm. So if we jump too quickly to everything happens the way it's supposed to for the soul to transform without really unpacking the pain, the suffering, the fear, like giving space for the ego, um, that will find another way because because of energy. It'll find either an aggressive or passive aggressive, either power over or power under way in which to reveal itself. Mm-hmm. So you got to go there. Can't get to forgiveness too soon. Um, or acceptance. You got to sit with the vibration of the anger because it's a part of our own humanity. Right. And, and so what, what do you see? Cause this is something I explore a lot <clears throat> and challenge people a lot about, um, is I f- going back to this idea that I think a lot of feminism has something to do with m- trying to make women more masculine. And I think mm-hmm. also making, trying to make men more feminine mm-hmm. and this sort of devaluing of masculinity mm-hmm. even within the space of men. So what do you see as the interplay sort of between those two energies, either within yoga or your own spiritual practice? Like, can you provide any sort of insight about that relationship? Mm-hmm. 
uh, I mean, the relationship between the masculine and the feminine as, as an archetype right, yeah. it has been in spiritual practices, you know, really in Tantra. It's such an invaluable thing that we're trying to find harmony and balance within ourselves so that there is an equal amount of the archetype of the feminine with the archetype of the masculine. Um, feminine being receptive, intuitive, uh, dark or deep, um, not dark as a negative, right. but just uh, uh, internal. Whereas masculine is activated, it's outward. Um, it's a, it's a, a, the sun energy. Um, we need all of that within us. It's when the ego comes in that looks at masculine as being dominant and feminine as being um, submissive is when we get into problems as we project those particular qualities onto people as if you are tough then you're a real man. Or just associating that power with dominance, right? Mm -hmm. Because I almost think we could just as easily associate it with, I mean, submissiveness is a complicated word, but yeah, that yeah. release, right, mm -hmm. can also be seen as powerful anyway. Yeah, you're right, yeah. in its own way. Right. But it is associated with power, power being an ego word, right. not empowered, which right. is a spirit word. Mm -hmm. And so the, there's been a, a mismanaging of what it means to be within that masculine dynamic and within the feminine dynamic, I can only speak for it within my own my my own body-mind connection in that I was raised in an environment with all boys, all male, uh, with all uncles, male cousins. A very uh, male-dominated environment where big feelings were suppressed where my big feelings were considered hysterical or crazy, which is what I would get labeled a lot, um, where there wasn't a lot of support for the nature of the feminine. The only way I could fit into that environment is I had to, quote, take it like a man, be one of the boys, where I had to pull on the costume of the, uh, of the way in which masculinity is embraced and celebrated within our culture as being one of strong, devoid of emotion, um, disconnected from their own self, uh, tough. And that's how I would get approval and love. For me to have to embrace my feminine was very difficult because I didn't have uh, evidence that it was safe to move into those other aspects that exist within me that needed recognition. My masculine was an unhealthy masculinity. It wasn't a healthy masculinity. I had to unpack that and look at what is within healthy spiritual masculinity that I want to live my life. I want to be activated. I want to be engaged. I want to be solid, structured, strong. Simultaneously being vulnerable, receptive, present, creative, nurturing, that the two can work together without one having to be separate from. So the masculine and the feminine dynamic is integrated. I wish there was one word yeah. that it can be called, you know, it's kind of like, what's the minotaur, the half man, half, Oh, um, yeah, isn't it the minotaur? Yeah. Half man, half beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a very poor you know, <laughs> representation, but nonetheless, to me, 
an integration of the masculine and fe- the masculine and feminine. They work. They live together. They work together. Mm-hmm. They're in relationship to each other. Um, they're not individuated or separated. And we still keep trying to separate them. And without or um, feminizing the masculine or masculine, masculating, I don't know what that word would be, <laughs> yeah. um, the feminine, yeah. rather than let them be its own entity, energy, um, archetype, and let them move into relationship with each other. And in between the archetype of the masculine and the archetype of the feminine, there are a myriad of other archetypes that live within it that are, like I don't want to say, because it genderizes, you know, that mm. there's the masculine, yeah. there's a feminine on an energetic level, just as in human in humanity, there's a spectrum of what it means to be within gender. It's the same thing. There's a spectrum of what it means to hold these archetypes within ourselves and to play and to work within them. But it's going to be individuated for each soul based on what their perception of the masculine and feminine is. Mm. It's complicated because it's a construct that we have used to disempower um, usually the feminine, right. um, but it's a construct that we have to dismantle without having to, uh, suppress men, right. you know, without having to d- d- deny them or make them wrong or bad for being in within the masculine construct. Yeah. Well, it's almost like too the, I would assume you agree that this, um, accessing and processing of grief, which I see as pretty feminine, mm-hmm. is the I think kind of what needs to happen before we do any of this like outer service, sort of potentially more masculine leaning work. Yeah. That there's this we need both of them. I mean, even mm-hmm. just the fact that like if the sun didn't exist to shine on the moon, then we wouldn't see the moon. You know, <laughs> like, right? Right. I feel uh-huh. like you can find these very tangible examples of the interplay. Mm-hmm everywhere. Yes. Yeah. But you know, I also have a lot of empathy empathy for the masculine because they haven't been taught grief, right? You know, to to connect to grief means to embrace the vulnerability. Where are the models for that? Um, there's a deep, uh, gender trauma that exists within, within all sexes that needs to be acknowledged. Um, uh, simultaneous to going out into the world and, and serving and activating. If I waited to really understand the depths of my grief before I engage in the world, I would do nothing. Yeah. It happens simultaneously. Yeah. Oh, it does. Yeah. There's a, an unlocking mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, and even that masculinity is protective and holding of that, you know, like, and that's, we think that, um, yeah, this, this toxicity associated with masculinity. When I see like, there's actually this piece where men can actually support women in this process and in doing so probably mm-hmm. process their own grief. And mm-hmm. there's such value in the, mm-hmm. the combination of both. So we have to humanize it. Uh, being in the human experience is, is hard. Yeah. The way I look at it is that we all have trauma and that we're all doing the best we can with what little we know based on the trauma we've experienced and the lack of tools that were available to us. Mm-hmm. And so if I can empathize that way with looking at the the masculine as an individual and as a culture, that there is deep trauma within that individual and within that cultural, within the paradigm, and that there hasn't been enough support or resources for them to unpack the trauma that exists. That I can empathize with. That I can see like, okay, we got some deep work. And there are amazing men 
doing incredible work that are trying to dismantle those systems within themselves. And this will take a lot of time and a lot of patience. Um, and in the same goes for women. There's a lot of trauma within the, uh, the paradigm of femininity that we have to take accountability for and look at and see the ways that we participate in it, the ways in which we send out mixed messages still because we're so unclear within ourselves. We have to have more empathy while we're in this process and not be a hypocrite and think that someone else should already figure this out when we haven't figured it out. Yeah, totally. Well, I think that's a good place to end. I really appreciate mm-hmm. it. Can you tell people where they can find you and your book sure, coming sure. out? Of course. They can find me at seancorn.com. Um, my book, they can find there too. My book's called Revolution of the Soul. It comes out, uh, it's released September 3rd, but they can pre-order it now. And that they can also get either on Amazon or uh, uh, all the, all the you know, their local yeah. bookstore, um, Sounds True, which is my publisher. And, um, but if they go to shuncorn.com and that's S E A N E C O R N, they can find out all sorts of information and get, you know, videos. Um, there's going to be a time soon where, um, they're going to have access digitally to about 30 hours of, of lecture and yoga content, asana content for free, um, by joining my mailing list. And so look out for that within the next month or so. And do you integrate this whole idea of your book into, like workshops or the yoga yes. that you teach is that sort of yeah yeah I t- I, I I host uh, the organization that I uh, right. I co lead off the mat into the world which bridges the gap between yoga um, transformational work social justice and conscious action that we train leader people how to step into leadership but from the inside out right. to really be able to look at the complexities of what leadership looks like today and how to approach it without creating more harm or dominance. Um, uh, even if that's not what we intend. Mm-hmm. And so we do a ton of trainings around the country and um, provide a lot of opportunities for people to get involved with different actions. We work a lot with bridging also uh, politics and yoga, getting people to vote and to understand the policies and understanding the importance of um, of the connection between yoga and politics because there can be no separation between it when s- someone's life is at stake, you know. And... Um, so off the mat into the world.org is where they can find out all of that information and revolution of the soul. It's dealing with both the evolution of the soul, which is the inside work that we do personally. And then the second part of the book is revolution of the soul, which really looks at, um, social change, justice, our complicity, uh, in creating harm. And what are the tools that we can use, especially people in the dominant culture to be able to approach, uh, change through the lens of justice so that, um, uh, it benefits all but from the inside out. Amazing. And one last question I ask everyone yeah. on my podcast. If you could recommend, and you can say two or three if you want, but one book that really that you would want everyone listening to this to read, what might that book be? Right now, I would have to say, the first book I would say that's, uh, is, is, I don't know the name of the authors, but it's called Is Everyone Really Equal? Or Is mm-hmm. Everybody Really Equal? And it's an academic book, but it doesn't read like an academic book at all. And for people who are interested in understanding like terminology around racism, privilege, um, things of that nature where you're just like, I need like 101 to figure this out. There's all these words being thrown around right now and I don't get it. Is Everybody Really Equal is an excellent book to like step in and be like, oh, I get that. That makes sense. White Fragility um, is another 
incredible book for, uh, especially for people who want, you know, for white people who want to go out there and say they want to be uh, co-conspirators or allies and, and support social change, really looking at what's been internalized within us and the way even uh, how our fragility, um, uh, our unwilling, our defensiveness when it comes to having to approach our own internalized racism or anyism uh, is still an expression of dominance and supremacy. It's an, another excellent, excellent resource. Um, Let's see. Uh, oh, God, there's just so many. I know there's so many. It's so hard. I read yeah. so much, too, that I'm like, this is a cruel question mm. I ask people to make them pick one. <laughs> uh, just Mercy by mm. Brian um, Stevenson mm. is another excellent book out that's, uh, that I would recommend cool. right now. As far as spirituality books or yoga books, um, again, there are so many of them. Uh, I always love Marianne Williamson, A Return to Love, when it's really connected to spirit and, and, and opening yourself up to that kind of... Uh, Understanding God from the Inside, that's mm -hmm. a, a beautiful book. And the yoga book would be uh, BKS Iyengar, Light on Yoga, would probably be the most important yoga book that you can get if you want to begin the process of understanding about yoga um, uh, and then evolve from there uh, to uh, Eastern Body, Western Mind, which really helps you to unpack trauma mm -hmm. and what lives in the body and understand the chakra system and the narratives we hold within our bodies. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the Thank time. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening to that episode. Um, today, I am going to play you out with a song. I honestly, I recorded this uh, the episode with Sean a few weeks back. I didn't have time to re-listen to it today, so I'm not sure if I mentioned this on the podcast or not. If I did, I'm sorry for the repetition. <laughs> if I didn't, um, <clears throat> we talked a lot about obviously releasing grief and trauma through the body. And one thing that I did quite frequently and still do is dance. I found that, um, I call them grief switches, that there are very few things that I found in my life that allow me to release and just really like break down and cry, um, in a way that after doing so feels like I've cleansed myself and feel a lot lighter and dancing was one of those things, and I would always, like, pick up on anxiety in my body and realize that I needed to get rid of it somehow. And one of the few things I could do to get rid of it was to dance. <clears throat> and when I say dance, I don't mean, like, a sexy choreographed routine. Quite the opposite. I would put on a song that I thought was beautiful, that made me feel relatively emotional, and would just sort of move my body. <clears throat> I started... Um, semi-vulnerably posting videos of me doing this on Instagram to encourage others to do the same. And I would just move and flow. And, um, especially when I was feeling super worked up, um, often I would move enough to the point where my body just sort of released and emotions came out. Um, one of the first songs that I did this to was a song by Leif Voliebeck. Um, who has some great fucking music. I've played, I think, a song or two of his on the podcast before, but this song is Tallahassee. I think it was the first song that I played when I recorded a video and posted it to Instagram, so hashtag nostalgia. thought that's what I would share today. So if you're feeling up to it, if you're inspired by this episode and want to move <clears throat> and want to process, grieve, or even just feel happy to be alive, get up, stand on your feet, Move your body, even if it's weird and looks awkward, <laughs> to the song. I promise afterwards it will feel good. Um, that's all for now. I think the next time I record a show, I'll be on the road, which is pretty exciting. 
So talk to you from some mystery land <laughs> somewhere on the West Coast. All right. Talk soon, everyone. Head on. Across the chamber made its chords It's like they was ringing by themselves and I see no river whiskey Is there sugar in your bowl? Ain't seen you for days now Still find your hair on my clothes Across the inner water Cross the tracks to St. Henry Will I come back on my own? Will I come back with Annalise? Ain't that the way to treat somebody? For you to treat yourself There's no more cane along the brazzers No more books upon your shelves Four silver eagles And the president disappeared And when they pulled back the curtain I saw the Budweiser in me And I was standing right between the E
I gonna see you at the judo. See you. 